Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Thanks for your word. And for all of the grace that it is dripping with in every single page. I pray that you would continue to honor us with learning and transformation and that we might bless you with our very lives. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so excited to be opening God's word with you today. We've been in a series in the first half of the book of Revelation. I was about to say Revelation. You're going to know why in a second. Romans, um, that we've been calling, wrapping our hearts around what's real. This image that we all are little worship machines. We are all people who wrap our lives, our identities, our everything around something. Problem is, is we're not always very good about choosing what that something is. God, however, is incredibly gracious to us and longs for us to wrap ourselves around him. We've been talking for a while about the kind of act of that wrapping, choosing Jesus, longing to know him. But I want to talk a little bit this morning about sort of the, the shape of what wrapping ourselves around Jesus does. If you really imagine kind of stretching this title to its logical conclusion, thinking about like Silly Putty or Slime or Play-Doh and conforming it as, you know, some of you who had kids did and they caked it around the, the TV remote or something that you really didn't want them to do, um, thinking about that shape. That's what we're going to talk about this morning with Romans 6. Not Revelation, but you'll know why. First of all, anybody ever been here before? I know that's a, kind of a, a small picture for some of you, but you recognize some of the icons, right? So this is a map of the Georgia Aquarium. Man, if you have not been downtown to the Georgia Aquarium, this thing is a jewel of Atlanta. It is amazing and beautiful and my only sadness in having a, a membership there to be able to go back there all the time is that I don't think I get the blown away factor of walking in for the first time like I did when I did. This is also a pretty good map. Um, it has things fairly well labeled. Um, it's got pictures, yay, for finding land, landmarks and whatnot. But it still doesn't have something that every person who walks into a sensory experience like the Georgia Aquarium longs for when they come to that kiosk with the map. And that is a star, a very specific marker that says you are here, an orientation factor. We long for orientation factors that help us understand where we are. 
Paul, here in Romans chapter 6, Stacy read the first four verses, but we're going to talk about the whole thing. Paul is going to use a lot of language that supposes you have a map already in your head. And so to understand this passage this morning, we're going to play with a map as well. And the reason I kept accidentally saying Revelation is because that map is of what is called eschatology, the study of the end times. Now, some of you have groaned inherently because we went through Revelation last year and it was a long time. Um, Don't worry, we're not going to get that deep into things. But really, a, a study of eschatology is more so a study of the whole story. If you grew up Jewish in the Old Testament, you had a very specific view of the story. And it's this story right here. And we're going to get deep enough that I have to use a little bit of a laser pointer here to try to do this. It begins with creation and fall. God makes the world. God creates people. People are broken. And then life happens until finally the Messiah shows up, what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. And to Old Testament Jews, the day of the Lord was it. God shows back up. The Messiah comes. He defeats sin and evil forever. Death and sadness are no more. And God's people live in the age to come forever. This is a good story. But Jesus complicated things a little bit. Because you see, this was the story that a lot of the early followers of Jesus also had. This is actually why, if you read in the Gospels, why people are sometimes confused when Jesus doesn't start declaring himself to be the Messiah openly or going to war with the Romans or starting to do like big, big miracles that would signal the end of the world. They were confused because they were very convicted that Jesus is the Messiah, but just as confused about why he's not acting like they supposed the Messiah was supposed to act like. This got even more confusing after Jesus dies, comes back to life, and then, just like Peter talked about earlier, ascends into heaven. The church is left being the church. Now, Jesus said he was going to come back, and he said he was going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's still doing really, really cool miracles through the Holy Spirit, But what does that do to the map? Paul actually spends in a number of his letters time trying to deal with this. I mean, this wasn't like a seminary class. These are people on the ground trying to work out theology for the first time. And what Paul begins to teach, and and others as well, because this pops up in Peter's writings as well, is kind of a, a stutter step. Instead of just age one, Age two, part one, part two, with one break in the middle, we have this overlap. Various theologians have called this different things over the history of the church. Some have called it the present age and the age to come. Some have called it the old age and the new age. A kind of colloquialism for it is the already and not yet. But basically it proposes this, that creation falls still happen. The Messiah shows up. But the present age keeps going. 
the Messiah also, his rule and reign begin. But the present age isn't done yet, even as the age to come is starting. And so we have this middle ground where some of the things that the Old Testament talked about were supposed to happen when the Messiah shows up are happening. I mean, we see this literally. This is how, in the book of Luke, Jesus inaugurates his ministry. He uses the passage in Isaiah that says, the blind will see and the lame will walk. The day of the Lord will be at hand. Of course, he doesn't go on to talk about the terrible wrath of God that's also spoken of in that passage because he's not going to bring that at this point in time. It's this stutter-stepped reality. And this is what Paul is dealing with with people in a number of his letters. This is why people who um, he deals with this in the book of Thessalonians, when people start dying off and they're like, oh no, did they miss the Messiah? Because they die and the present age isn't over. Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's how he deals with questions about, you know, is, um, what, is, what is Israel now? Still, this idea, we're a new creation in Christ. The people of God are this group, the people of the age to come. So many different places. I give you that map because Paul needs his people to know this map, to know this concept, to understand what he's going to be doing in this chapter and in the next chapter. If you remember context, Paul is talking to the church in Rome. Paul does not know the church in Rome. He may have visited, he may have not, we're not certain, but in some respects, Romans is his resume letter. This is a letter that he is writing to the church in Rome because he wants them to be a church like in town. He wants them to be a sending church. He wants them to kind of be his home base because Paul has spent his whole life planting churches all over what we would consider now to be Turkey-ish, Asia Minor. And now he's looking at Europe. He's looking at Spain in particular. And he has this burning passion to go talk to people who have never heard about Jesus yet. But he needs help. He needs friends. It's a very, very long journey from Turkey to Spain. And so he's issuing this letter in hopes that they would see the gospel, that they would get excited about it, and that they would send him off. But Paul also cannot be academic. Like, this cannot be an academic exercise for him. Paul isn't giving a seminary class. He actually wants these people at Rome to grow. And so the letter is not a hypothetical example sermon, if you will, as if, you know, you're hiring somebody and you want them to preach a fake sermon so you know that they can talk for a living or something like that. He actually wants them to grow in Christ. So what he's going to do is he's going to give a main statement and then he's basically going to spend most of the rest of the letter, at least until some of the later chapters, dealing with all of the problems people are going to have with that statement. Basic statement is this. God is awesome. God is holy. Everyone else is not. And everyone needs Jesus. That is Romans 1 in a nutshell. Everyone needs Jesus forever. But then he's going to play around 
bouncing back and forth between these two categories. People who have problems with this because it feels too easy, too gracious, like God just willy-nilly throws his love out and around without people earning it, without people doing something. And people who are so afraid or burdened or want to do whatever that they really chafe at any idea of anyone telling them what to do. And Paul's got to bounce back and forth and back and forth, almost like a, a ping pong tournament with these problems. He spends most of chapters two through five, what we've covered so far, dealing with a lot of these legalistic issues, which largely were coming from Jewish Christians in the day. Dealing with things like, oh, you know, those people over there who are so horrible. Or, Paul, how can you have so many issues with us? Weren't we Israel? Or aren't we supposed to be important? Like, what good is there at all to be an Israelite? You know, does my heritage even matter? Things like that. But in chapter 6, he's going to begin to go over here. He's going to begin to talk to people who are struggling with the same story, with the same gospel, not because they think it should have more rules, but because they are struggling with how gracious it is. Paul's message for them is kind of simple. Stop sinning. No, I'm serious. You just read it. Stacy just read it. You see, what happened is you had people who, having now heard about the grace of Jesus that covers everything, a grace that didn't just cover the Old Testament stuff, a grace that didn't just work like a lamb or a bull or a goat that was sacrificed for a specific sin at a specific time at a specific place. No, you had Jesus who dies and for all of his people, for all of time, past, present, and future, the gospel ripples out and radiates and covers and pays for every sin the people of God had, were, or would ever commit. It's amazing. But it's problematic in the sense that if, if you literally now, like, don't, there's no fear of sin anymore. There's no fear of, of God's wrath being poured out on you. It's already in Jesus. Yay, I can sin more, right? Like that, that was the take some people had. Other people even pushed it further and would say, whoa, wait a second. If like God got glory for covering sin, what if I sin a lot and I'm really, really bad and then God covers me, that's gonna make him seem even more awesome. Again, it, it sounds crazy to think, but it, it is a struggle people had. And I think sometimes with us, it, it still is a struggle, right? I don't know that it's this explicit all the time, but so often I do think we can take on an attitude as well of like, nah, I'm just too tired fighting that kind of sin. Whatever, I'm going to keep going with it. Why? Because Jesus has got me. I'm good. It's all good. Paul says no, but no, not in a scolding no, a burdensome no, but actually a no with a lot of excitement behind it. That's why the map's important. 
Because Paul's going to do this in two different ways. He's going to use an image first of death and resurrection. I'm going to keep reading in chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him, Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay, follow the map again with this. Jesus lives life, all right? Now, he's unique in the fact that unlike all of us, Jesus is the only one who defeats sin, who does not sin, who lives a life pleasing to God. But Jesus still dies. And in fact, when he dies, God lumps all of the wrath of God on him. We literally sang that in Behold the Lamb of God, the song that we sang. Jesus dies, and Jesus comes back to life. And the Bible describes Jesus as this new creation. Again, not in the sense that Jesus is a creature, not some like demigod thing. No, Jesus is God. But nonetheless, this idea that Jesus, when he dies and comes back to life, he is something different. And he lives as that something different forever. What is the something different? Well, Jesus died. He will never die again, having been raised from the dead. Death no longer has dominion over him. Okay, now think about us. We do live in this present age with a lot of sin in our lives. And yet what Paul is saying here is in a sense, when Jesus died, we died with him. We're united with him in his death. And we're united with him in his resurrection. So in some respects, the believer is also right here. Not right here. And so what Paul is saying is, in the same way that we, we could say death was sort of, or sin was sort of the lifeblood of humanity, you die, and when you come back to life, you are a new creation, and sin is not your lifeblood anymore. You are qualifiably different as a believer in Jesus now than you were when you were not a believer in Jesus. Your heart is different. He uses a second image as well, and it's a little bit harder, I think, for, for modern uh, ears for us to hear. It's an image of slavery and freedom. In the same way, I'm going to skip a couple of verses. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. 
Do you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin. You who were once slaves in sin have been obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. And he's going to keep going. Talking about slavery is also pretty, always pretty hard, right, in Scripture. Um, there are a number of different instances where the idea of slavery is used in Scripture. What is very difficult is all of them are still complicated. All of them are still largely very broken. However, none of them are a one-to-one correlation with where our mind immediately goes in America here, which is chattel slavery um, of largely African individuals being brought over and then the legacy of slavery and racism here in America. What Paul is referring to is actually more akin to an idea of indentured servanthood. So it would be something like this. The closest, well, let me explain. Let's say I owe Jason Kang money. See, Jason, this is what you get for sitting up front. I owe Jason money. I don't have money. I cannot go to a bank and get a loan to get money. My collateral is myself. And so I actually contract with Jason to be Jason's slave for a certain period. And he will be my master. And in that way, I will pay off my debt to Jason. It is voluntary. And at the same time, it is deeper than just Jason's going to hire me. And if it doesn't work, like my two weeks notice and we're done. Closest thing we have today would actually be something like the military, right? Like you sign up for the armed services, you actually make that vow, you cannot just give a two weeks notice. You can't get out of the army that way. There's gonna be some ramifications to trying to break this contract. It's the closest thing we have in our culture. So what Paul is saying again in the same way is, you at one point were a slave to sin. You were serving Sin. Sin was your master. Sin reigned over you. And then you died. When you died, you stopped being a slave. It obviously is one of those relationships, right, that when you die, it's done. Similar thing like marriage today, right? Like marriage is a commitment we make. When one spouse dies, the other spouse is no longer legally married to that individual for the sake of contracts and things like that. The slavery identity, the relationship, the contract would die with the individual's death. So if you are someone who was a slave to sin and you die, the burden of the contract of the slavery of sin in your life is done. It is gone. And what Paul says is you actually are freed up now to offer yourself to God in hope, in love, and also in obedience. So Paul is saying, 
come on, you lived this way for a long time. You know what happened when you were a slave to sin. Why would you ever decide to try to re-up that commitment now? You're a new creation. You're a new person. You're not living in the same era. I mean, in some respects, it's like you're a new organism. Why on earth would you try to re-up this commitment with a different heart? This is actually a very specific tool of, of, of literature that, that Paul uses a lot. It's, it's kind of a sandwich approach. He gives multiple reasons and sticks what he says in the middle because this is how he says most strongly. Verse 11, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone? I'm sorry, that was 15. 11. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sins as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law. You are under grace. The people of God have always struggled with these two sides. Some of us have always struggled with why can't I just earn my forgiveness? It's easier, it's cleaner, it gives me you know, easy boundaries to know what to do. Others of us have always struggled with how free Christianity is. God, I can't stop sinning. I'm struggling. I, I don't get it. I just you know, want to go do my own thing and hope you still love me at the end of the day. I think both of these groups would really, really struggle if stop sinning was the only message that you heard today. But I want you to hear it in the context of who Paul is. Paul is not academically lecturing these people. Paul loves these people. When someone who loves you is telling you to stop doing something, they are not doing it out of anger. They're not doing it out of judgment. Even more so if someone who also struggles with the same things you do is telling you to stop doing something. It's not out of anger. It's not out of judgment. It's not out of shame. This stop sinning is a stop sinning of encouragement. He's saying it is possible, Christian, for you to have victory over sin in your life. Now, not wholly, not completely. That's why Jesus comes back and makes us new. But I think a lot of us live in this defeated place that says, I've lived too long. I am who I am. I have made the same mistakes over and over and over again. My marriage is the way it is. My parenting is the way it is. My job is the way it is. 
life is just the way it is. And I'm too tired to change. I'm too tired to do anything different. Everything I've done doesn't work. Now, Paul is not falling into the law problem. He's not giving you a 10-point blog post saying, well, you just need to do all of these things and it'll fix you. But he's also not saying that you are somehow so broken that it's over. It's done. The fight is worth it for Paul. The fight is worth it because of where you live. Because you do not live here. Because you live here. Because you live in a reality where Jesus has already died and come back to life. You are capable of growing. Because you live in a reality where you are not a slave to sin, you can tell the sin in your life to take a hike. Again, I'm going to keep saying it's not easy. And, and part of that's because I can't preach Romans 7, in which Paul's about to say it's not easy until next week. So stay tuned. But we need to take hope in this, friends. Church has never been, worship has never been a beat-up session. And I think culturally it so often is where we come to church each and every week and we're just reminded about how bad we are. And we leave tired and we leave exhausted, and we leave, you know, just deflated. And then we go on with our week. Maybe we try to tweak a thing here or there, and then we come back the next week, and we're just reminded about how useless the last week seems to have been. I think we have a very, very low threshold for all of that change. Paul is even writing this, not in terms of years, but in terms of decades upon decades. He's got a lot of gray and a lot of scars as he's writing this. He knows that he's had victory over some sins in his life and other sins he hasn't. He knows that he's had victory over some and the new temptations have come up. But what I love about Paul is that he is able to hold our agency and God's sufficiency in Jesus together. We can say, hey, there are practical means to resisting temptation. You know, you struggle with pornography, we start talking about browser history and accountability and verses of the Bible that we memorize and we think about and we talk about you know, deeper understandings of sexuality and, and sin and, and the glory of God in those things. Yes, we do. And also grace upon grace upon grace. Christianity can hold both of those things together. And talking about one does not make a legalistic church and talking about the other does not make some willy-nilly church that doesn't care about actually having morals. This is the glory of what God wanted to bring to the world. That he could show us what is right. And he could also die and transform us to begin in this little tiny echo foreshadowing of what he's going to do one way, which is to actually make it all right. 
we can live in both of those places. One theologian said it this way, God's kingdom is present in its beginnings, but still future in its fullness. This guards us from an under-realized eschatology, expecting no change now, and an over-realized eschatology, expecting all of us to change now. In this stage, we embrace the reality that while we're not yet what we will be, we are also no longer what we used to be. We need to hear Paul's words in staying, stop sinning, not as a burden, but as an encouragement, as exciting, as joy, as saying, hey friend, we're climbing up the mountain together. You're stumbling, you're out of breath. It's hard. Come on, you can do this. We can do this. And that's an encouragement we can also give one another. Let's pray. Jesus, again, all of this is because you died and rose again. You are the ultimate elder brother, the only one who can perfectly be up on the top of the mountain waiting for us and also be right next to us, encouraging us to keep going. Help us, please, to keep our eyes on you and not to our own effort. But also, please, as we look to you, would you please encourage our hearts, give strength to our hands, give swiftness to our feet, that we may run to you and run away from sin and see this as something that we can do because of what you have done in and through and for us. May it be true as we go home, many of us very tired from a weekend, others of us dreading the week to come. May we go out in the joy of knowing that, yes, we are not what we will be or even maybe what we expected to be by this point but we are not what we once were. And so you will continue the work you have begun in us until the day of Christ Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.